Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the curse of the pharaohs or the mummy's curse, which is a curse alleged to be cast upon anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, especially a pharaoh. This curse, which does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, is claimed to have caused bad luck, illness or death. Since the mid-20th century, many authors and documentaries have argued that the curse is real in the sense of having scientifically explicable causes such as bacteria or radiation. However, the modern origins of Egyptian mummy curse tales, their development primarily in European cultures, the shift from magic to science to explain curses, and their changing uses from condemning disturbance of the dead to entertaining horror film audiences, suggest that Egyptian curses are primarily a cultural, not scientific phenomenon. There are occasional instances of genuine ancient curses appearing inside or on the facade of a tomb, as in the case of the Mastaba of, I'm going to butcher this name, Kintika Aikinki of the 6th dynasty at Sakura. These appear to be directed towards the Ka priest to protect the tomb carefully and preserve its ritual purity rather than as a warning for potential robbers. There had been stories of curses going back to the 19th century, but they multiplied after Howard Carter's discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Despite popular misconceptions, no curse was found inscribed in the pharaoh's tomb. The evidence for curses relating to Tutankhamun is considered to be so meagre that Donald B. Redford viewed it as unadulterated claptrap. Curses relating to tombs are extremely rare, possibly because the idea of such desecration was unthinkable and even dangerous to record in writing. They most frequently occur in private tombs of the Old Kingdom era. The tomb of Ankatifi, 9th to 10th dynasty, contains the warning, quote, any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin may Hmen, a local deity, not accept any goods he offers and may his here not inherit, end quote. The tomb of Kintika Ikenhiki, 6th dynasty, sorry if I get that name wrong, contains an inscription, and I quote, as for all men who shall enter this my tomb, impure, there will be judgment, an end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. End quote. Curses after the Old Kingdom era are much less common, though more severe, sometimes involving the ire of Toth or the destruction of Sekhmet. Zahi Hawass quotes an example of a curse. Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. End quote. Hieroglyphs were not deciphered until the early 19th century, so reports of curses before this are simply perceived bad luck associated with the handling of mummies and other artifacts from tombs. In 1699, Louis Penisher wrote an account in which he recorded how a Polish traveller bought two mummies in Alexandria and embarked on a sea journey with the mummies in the cargo hold. The traveller was alarmed by recurring visions of two spectres, and the stormy seas did not abate until the mummies were thrown overboard. 
Zahi Huas recalled that as a young archaeologist excavating at Komabu Billow, he had to transport several artifacts from the Greco-Roman site. His cousin died on that day, his uncle died on its first anniversary, and on the third anniversary his aunt died. Three years later, when he excavated the tombs of the builders of the pyramids at Giza, he encountered the curse. Quote, all people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in the water and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion on land. End quote. Though not superstitious, Hawass decided not to disturb the mummies. However, he, was la he later was involved in the removal of two child mummies from Bahawa Oasis to a museum and reported he was haunted by the children in his dreams. The phenomena did not stop until the mummy of the father was reunited with the children in the museum. He concluded that mummies should not be displayed, though it was a lesser evil than allowing the general public into the tombs. Hawass also recorded an incident of a sick young boy who loved ancient Egypt and was subject to a miracle cure in the Egyptian museum when he looked into the eyes of the mummy king of Amus I. The idea of a mummy reviving from the dead, an essential element of many mummy cursed tales, was developed in The Mummy, or a tale of the 22nd century, an early work combining science fiction and horror, written by Jane C. Lorden and published anonymously in 1827. Louisa May Alcott was thought by Dominic Maristarat to have been the first to use a fully formed mummy cursed plot in her 1869 story Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse, a hitherto forgotten piece of mummy fiction that he rediscovered in the late 1990s. However, two stories subsequently discovered by S.J. Wolfe, Robert Singerman and Gisman Day, The Mummy's Soul, Anonymous, 1862, and After 3,000 Years, written by Jane G. Austen in 1868, have similar plots in which a female mummy takes magical revenge upon her male desecrator. Jasmine Day therefore argues that the modern European concept of curses is based upon an analogy between desecration of tombs and rape, interpreting early curse fiction as proto-feminist narratives authored by women. The Anonymous and Austen stories predate Alcott's piece, raising the possibility that even earlier lost mummy curse prototype fiction awaits rediscovery. The belief in a curse was brought to many people's attention due to the deaths of a few members of Howard Carter's team and other prominent visitors to the tomb of Tutankhamun shortly thereafter. Carter's team opened the tomb of Tutankhamun KV-62 in 1923, launching the modern era of Egyptology. The famous Egyptologist James Henry Breasted worked with Carter soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a message on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, the messenger thought he heard a faint, almost human cry. Upon reaching the entrance, he saw the birdcage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth, and this fueled local rumours of a curse. Arthur Weigel, a previous Inspector General of Antiquities to the Egyptian government, reported that this was interpreted as Carter's house being broken into by royal cobra, the same as that worn on the king's head to strike enemies on the very day the king's tomb was being broken into. An account of the incident was reported by the New York Times on the 22nd of December, 1922. The first of the deaths was that of Lord Caranavan, who financed the excavation. He had been bitten by a mosquito and later slashed the bite accidentally while shaving. It became infected and that resulted in blood poisoning. Two weeks before Caranavan died, Mary Corelli wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. A media frenzy followed with reports that a curse had been found in the king's tomb, though this was untrue. The superstitious Benito Mussolini, who had once accepted an Egyptian mummy as a gift, ordered its immediate removal from the Palazzo Chingi.
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Caravan's death had been caused by elementals created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb, and this further fueled the media interest. Arthur Weigel reported that six weeks before Caravan's death, he had watched the Earl laughing and joking as he entered the king's tomb and said to a nearby reporter, H.V. Morton, quote, I give him six weeks to live, end quote. The first autopsy carried out on the body of Tutankhamun by Dr. Deary found a healed lesion on the left cheek, but as Karen Avon had been buried six months previously, it was not possible to determine if the location of the wound on the king corresponded with the fatal mosquito bite on Karen Avon. A study of documents and scholarly sources led the Lancet to conclude it unlikely that Karanavon's death had anything to do with Tutankhamun's tomb, refuting another theory that exposure to toxic fungi, mycotoxins, had contributed to his demise. The report points out that the Earl was only one of many to enter the tomb on several occasions and that none of the others were affected. The cause of Karanavon's death was reported as pneumonia superventing on facial erysloplase, a streptococcal infection of the skin and underlying soft tissue. I'm sorry if I get any of that wrong. I'm not really good at scientific words. Pneumonia was thought to be only one of various complications arising from the progressively invasive infection that eventually resulted in multi-organ failure. The Earl had been prone to frequent and severe lung infections, according to Lancet, and there had been a general belief that one acute attack of bronchitis could have killed him. In such a debilitated state, the Earl's immune system was easily overwhelmed by erysipelas. In 1925, the anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingram, was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet marked with, Cursed be he who moves my body, to him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. End quote. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. Howard Carter was entirely sceptical of such curses, dismissing them as Tommy Rot and commenting that the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. End quote. In May of 1926, he reported in his diary of sighting of a jackal of the same type as Anubis, the guardian of the dead, for the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert, although he did not attribute this to supernatural causes. Skeptics have pointed out, however, that many others who visited the tomb or helped to discover it lived long and healthy lives. A study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within a dozen years. All the others were still alive, including Howard Carter, who died of lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64. The last survivors included Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Caranavon's daughter, who was among the first people to enter the tomb after its discovery in November of 1922, who lived for a further 57 years and died in 1980, and American archaeologist J.O. Kinnaman, who died in 1961, 39 years after the event. Now I'm going to get into a list of the deaths that are popularly, popularly attributed to Kutentaman's curse. So the tomb was opened on the 29th of November 1922. The first to be killed was George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Caranavon. The man who financed the excavation of King Tut's tomb was the first to succumb to the supposed curse. Lord Caranavon accidentally tore open a mosquito bite while shaving and ended up dying of blood poisoning shortly thereafter. This occurred a few months after the tomb was opened and a mere six weeks after the press started reporting on the mummy's curse, which was thought to afflict anyone associated with disturbing the mummy. Legend has it that when Lord Caranavon died, all the lights in his house, or according to some accounts, all the lights in Cairo mysteriously went out. 
Then there was Sir Bruce Ingham Howard Carter, the archaeologist who discovered the tomb, gave a paperweight to his friend Bruce Ingram as a gift. The paperweight, appropriately or perhaps quite inappropriately, consisted of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that was supposedly inscribed with the phrase, as I mentioned before, Cursed be he who moves my body. Ingram did not die from the mummy's curse, although his house burned down to the ground not long after receiving the gift. When he tried to rebuild it, it was hit with a flood. Then we have George J. Guild I. George J. Guild was a wealthy American financer and railroad executive who visited the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1923 and fell sick almost immediately afterward. He never really recovered and died of pneumonia a few months later. Then we have A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team. He died in April 1928, having suffered from pleurusian pneumonia in his final years. Then there was Aubrey Herbert. It's said that Lord Caravan's half-brother suffered from King Tut's curse simply by being related to the amateur Egyptologist. Aubrey Herbert was born with a degenerative eye condition and became totally blind later in life. A doctor suggested his rotten infected teeth were somehow interfering with his vision, so Herbert had every single tooth pulled from his head in an effort to regain his sight. It didn't work. He did, however, die of sepsis as a result of the dental surgery just five months after the death of his supposedly cursed brother. Then we have Hugh Evelyn White. Hugh Evelyn White was a British archaeologist who visited King Tut's tomb and may have helped excavate the site. By 1924, after seeing death sweep over about two dozen of his fellow excavators, Evelyn White died by suicide, but not before writing allegedly in his own blood, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. End quote. Then we have Aaron Ember. American Egyptologist Aaron Ember was friends with many of the people who were present when King Tut's tomb was opened, including Lord Caranavon. Ember died in 1926 when his house in Baltimore burned down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He could have exited safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he'd been working on while she fetched their son. Sadly, they and the family's maid died in the catastrophe. The name of Ember's manuscript? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Then we have Captain the Honourable Richard Bethel. Bethel was Lord Caranavon's secretary and the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb. He died in 1929 under suspicious circumstances, though one modern historian has attributed his death to the work of infamous occultist Alistair Crowley. Bethel was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. Soon after the Nottingham Evening Post mused, and I quote, the suggestion that the Honourable Richard Bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home where some some of the priceless finds from Tutankhamun's tomb was stored, end quote. No evidence of a connection between artifacts and Bethel's deaths was ever established, though. Then we have Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. Proving that you didn't have to be one of the excavators or expedition backers to fall victim to Tutankhamun's curse, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, a radiologist, merely x-rayed Tut before the mummy was given to museum authorities. He got sick the next day and was dead three days later. Then there was James Henry Breasted. James Henry Breasted, another famous Egyptologist of the day, was a member of Carter's team when King Tut's tomb was opened. Shortly thereafter, he allegedly returned home to find that his pet canary had been eaten by a cobra and the cobra was still occupying the cage. Since the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy and a motif that kings wore on their headdresses to represent protection, this was a rather ominous sign. Breasted himself didn't die until 1935, although his death did occur immediately after a trip to Egypt. Then we come to Howard Carter. Now, Carter never had a mysterious, inexplicable illness, and his horse never fell victim to any fiery disasters. He died of lymphoma at the age of 64. His tombstone even says, May your spirit live, may you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. End quote. Perhaps the pharaohs saw fit to spare him from their curse.
perhaps. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. Letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to several news media officers and to Democratic Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Lee.